We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And by former AmCham Taipei president, William Foreman. It's great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the inaugural Taiwan-US Economic Prosperity Partnership Dialogue, the government playing down the impact of the just-signed Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the Central Epidemic Command Centre announcing new coronavirus prevention regulations for winter, the Mainland Affairs Council blasting Beijing for drafting a list of so-called stubborn Taiwan independence advocates, and an electrician from Tainan who's being lauded a hero for simply making a very, very good catch. But we'll begin with the National Communications Commission rejecting John Tian Cable News's broadcasting licence renewal new application on Wednesday of this week. And that's the first time since the telecommunications and broadcast watchdog was established in February of 2006 that it has rejected a licence renewal from a news station. NCC chairman Chen Yaosheng told reporters that the application was rejected after a seven-member review board found the cable news network had repeatedly violated regulations. And those regulation violations included a failure of control mechanisms and internal controls on news reporting, outside interference, and the NCC says a surge in viewer complaints since 2017 that made up some 30% of all the complaints received by the Commission. The NCC chairman went on to say, although Zhong Tian News submitted eight measures during the review process aimed at improving the situation, the Commission believes that none of them would have eliminated the interference of major shareholders in its news sector. The cable news network, meanwhile, is voicing its opposition to the NCC's ruling, describing it as the darkest day for freedom of the press and speech since martial law was lifted over 30 years ago. The network is also claiming that if it's shut down, over 80% of Taiwan's cable television news channels will be owned by or supportive of the government, and says that it plans to appeal the ruling and use every legal means at its disposal to reverse the decision. But however, as it stands now, the news channel will go quiet on December the 12th. Now, KMT chairman Johnny Jung is calling on President Tsai Ing-wen to comment publicly on this week's decision by the NCC, and according to Jung, while Commission Chairman Chen Yaosheng is insisting that there is no political interference from the DPP in its decision. Zhang says that many other people believe the NCC ruling was not impartial. And he told reporters that it's time for Tsai to address the nation on the issue and explain how it was not a violation of people's right to freedom of speech as stipulated in the island's constitution. So, Brian, there we go. Zhang Tian's losing its news licence. But was it a big government ploy to stymie and shut up the news that says bad things about it? Or was it simply that it violated broadcast regulations? So it is quite an interesting case, particularly with Zhongtian, because Zhongtian is one of the media outlets that's owned by the Wan Wan Group. And the Wan Wan Group is known for trying to promote pro-unification views in Taiwan. Uh, the CEO, Tsai Ming, is not is not is not hiding this actually. He's been quite open about the fact that he his buying up of media outlets such as CTI TV, Zhongtian, uh, CTV, China Television, the uh, what eventually became the China Times, what um, what China Times as, as in English anyway, um, was in order to just push this uh, pro unification narrative. And even in their uh, press release regarding this decision, they did actually cite that we are in favor of quote unquote peaceful relations between China and Taiwan. We're the media outlet that is promoting these views, and that's why the Tsai administration is coming after us. Uh, that being said, uh, want want group outlets such as the China Times have been accused of taking money from China over two billion NTD, according to the Apple Daily last year. Also, it was reported by the Financial Times that uh, the China Times was, for example, taking orders directly from the Taiwan Affairs 
office that they had a say in the editorial direction of a newspaper. Uh, with Zhongtian, there was, uh, I believe, in May last year, they're putting around 80% of their airtime devoted to, uh, to supporting Han Guo, the preferred candidate uh, for KMT presidential uh, nomination. And so is quite explicit where their political views are, and they did put out reports such as claiming that an auspicious cloud appeared above three KMT mayors when they gathered. And this has raised questions. I mean, if the Tsai administration is not willing to take action against Zhongtian, it actually cannot regulate media because this is is so so prominent and out there and and widely discussed. Uh, But then with that being said, it is a major media outlet, and so there is definitely going to be backlash. This will be perceived as a partisan move, and I think the KMT has been given ammunition with which to rally around. I just wanted to add, you know, a lot um, has been reported about the Want Want group taking uh, money from from China, and I, I just I just think that's worth worth kind of a, a closer look and perhaps more more context. Um, um, you know, it's it's good to it's good to, to to point out that you know many many companies, many multinational companies with major investments in China receive incentives uh, from local governments, and and, and this this is an illegal in in Taiwan. Um, you know, it, it, the money that that, that want, want group has been uh, has has received has been called subsidies, but actually it's, it's it, they're they're investment incentive payments, and these include things like refunds on taxes paid in China, incentives on land purchases to build factories, rebates on export taxes, and it's gotten so much of this th- these incentives because because it's invested so much in China. So. Um, it's it's a it's it's definitely a definitely a very complex story. But Brian, I mean, if you own a television station, do you see anything wrong with basically making a point that maybe you believe in the 1992 consensus? Because of course, saying that you believe in the 1992 consensus is slightly less hostile than saying you believe in Beijing invading Taiwan. Mm, yeah, that's right. And so I think it's a it's it's kind of funny that there's this uh, use of rhetoric by the Wanma group, for example, claiming that if the CTITV Zhongtian is taken off air, then 80% of media will be supportive or uh, owned by the government. I mean, if, for example, Taiwan becomes part of China, then that number will increase to 100%. Um, so I think uh, what's interesting then is that this points to the difficulties regulating media in Taiwan, uh, particularly regarding Chinese information, uh, because of the fact that there's an entire half of the political spectrum that is pro-unification. It's very hard to sort out what is a legitimate political view from what is actually aiding, uh, for example, a foreign hostile enemy. And same with investment, actually, then drawing the line between what is a legitimate investment and what is a foreign government trying to pay media for a positive press. That's actually very difficult to do. And I think that's one of the inherent challenges the Tsai administration faces. And so Tsai actually has to tread carefully on this because of the fact that she does not want to be perceived as going against freedom of press. And Zhong Tian and the Walmart group is also aware of this. And so actually, I think they are directing a lot of their appeals now to international media to try to build this image of Tsai actually not being democratic, of violating freedoms of press and freedom. But Bill, of course, TV viewers can also just turn off the set or go up and down the channels if they don't want to watch what one particular news station has to say. Indeed, that's true. They can they can vote with their remote controls, and and uh, you know there there's a segment of the population that uh, you know shares shares the views of the the, the you know the, the founder of, of the Want Want Group, and um, and I think I think there they fear that it will become politically incorrect to talk about. Uh, Unification uh, or the 92 consensus, um, and that um, that that certainly would be unfortunate for Taiwan. Uh, Brian, I mean, 
do you think the government is styming it? There's a basic question. Do you think the government is styming it or do you think basically John Tian did break and violate numerous broadcast regulations? It's actually very interesting because I think that even some uh, apparent green advocates were not actually supportive of, of not renewing John Tian's license, despite the fact that John Tian has done all this. Um, I think that it's a, it's a question, particularly regarding disinformation, just what stance the Times Institution takes here will actually set the uh, kind of future direction of policy that if there is a, for example, if there's enough public backlash, Tsai will be more refrained on taking action against Chinese information. But if there's not, she might feel encouraged to do more of this. Um, but even, for example, polling by the Taiwan Public Opinion Foundation, which is a more or less considered deep green pollster, uh, did actually show that the majority of the public is not in support of of, of uh, not renewing Zhong Tian's license, that there actually is over 50% that oppose renewing the, not renewing the license. And so that's also quite interesting to me. I think that there were some voices warning regarding this. Uh, but I think it's particularly become an issue regarding elections now, particularly after 2018 and 2020, with a growing concern about Chinese disinformation. So I think that that's, uh, it's a sign of the times to come, maybe. And Bill, do you think the National Communications Commission should basically release publicly all the violations that Zhong Tian allegedly did and release all the information about the hearing? Yeah, I think, I think transparency in these really vital issues is, is always essential indeed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, for example, Reporters Without Borders, their statement was that it was regrettable but did not go against media freedom. Um, in, in other words, they did say that this, they do view uh, the government as having the right to regulate media. At the same time, they did call on the government to be more transparent against wh- about why this, this happened and uh, what, if it could happen again and, and so forth. And moving away from broadcast controversies to some business news. And Deputy Economics Minister Chen Zhengqi jetted off to Washington this week for the inaugural Taiwan-US Economic Prosperity Partnership Dialogue. Chen says the talks will be taking place on a government-to-government footing and will not be affected by the pending transition in power in America. And the aim of the first round of the talks is to step up two-way economic cooperation. Now, according to Chen, the two sides will be discussing issues covering seven fields, including a clean 5G network, global health care, supply chains, energy development and infrastructure investment. And Chen also says the dialogue underscores rather the establishment of an overall economic partnership between the two countries. Now Chen, of course, will be participating in the physical talks in Washington, D.C., while Economics Minister Wang Meihua and Minister Without Portfolio, who just happens to be Taiwan's top trade and aid negotiator, John Dung, will be taking part in a video conference part of the talks from Taipei. So, Bill, there we go, new U.S. trade talks, but it's not really a trade talks. It's more cooperation talks in certain areas. That's right. That's right. I, I would like to see the, the U.S. trade representative, USTR, be more involved in this. But this, these talks are really being driven by, by the State Department. Um, so that's, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, but on the upside, these, these talks are a valuable exercise. They really, they really help focus minds on, on both sides. Um, I think the people leading the talks are, are fantastic. Uh, as you mentioned, C.C. Chen will, will be going to, you know, is in Washington. And, and uh, he was most recently based in Washington. And he knows the town well. He's got an excellent reputation there. He's, he's really well-liked and well-respected in Washington. And then on the U.S. side, uh, it's Keith Kroc um, representing the U.S. He's the Undersecretary of State uh, for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment. Um, what's interesting about him is that he's, um, he's a businessman. He, he knows how the world of business works, and um, he's also a tech guy. Uh, he's an engineering by, engineer by training. He's got an MBA from, from, from Harvard. Um, he, um, he was the youngest ever VP at General Motors and, and led the formation of the company's first Japanese joint venture. 
And, uh, you know, before joining the Trump administration, he was the CEO and chairman of DocuSign. So he knows, he knows important sectors like uh, e-commerce. And um, if I may, I'll just share a, a, a little anecdote about, about Keith Kroc. Last year, in, in November, uh, the United States had a, a big meeting in Bangkok, the Indo-Pacific Business Forum, and, and countries from all around the regions um, sent delegations to that, to that meeting, and, and Taiwan sent one that was uh, led by uh, James Hong of Taitra, as, as well as um, uh, the AIT director. And um, the, kind of the keynote speaker of that event was Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. But um, Wilbur Ross didn't visit with the Taiwan delegation, which was really unfortunate. They had meetings on the sidelines with all the delegations. Wilbur Ross didn't meet with the Taiwan delegation. He was sensitive about uh, China, which was, was really unfortunate. But Keith Kroc did. Keith Kroc did come and, and meet with a delegation of business leaders from Taiwan. And he, and he shared a little story. He said that when he was a student at Purdue University... Um, as an undergrad, uh, his roommate was from Taiwan. And he said, not only was this guy the, the most intelligent, brilliant person he's ever met, he was also the kindest person he ever met. And, and, and Kroc did a really great job of connecting with the Taiwanese delegation. He's very enthusiastic about Taiwan, a big supporter of Taiwan. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. And Brian, I mean, it was obviously... The Deputy Economics Minister has said, you know, the fact that there's a transition coming up sometime soon, maybe, Mm. in the US government, these talks won't be affected. Um, Yeah, that's right. And so the Times Nation is framing this as something that will uh, carry on as a government-to-government basis between the U.S. and Taiwan, not between any specific presidential administration. And I think this is reflective of the kind of odd dilemma in which uh, Tsai finds herself in currently, because of the fact that there was the strengthening of U.S. supportive actions for Taiwan under the Trump administration, uh, but election uh, results are still disputed. Um, And so then one had this phenomenon of, for example, world leaders having phone calls with Biden, Um, for example, in South Korea and Japan, um, between Suga and Moon. And there was all this discussion of would that happen with Tsai, for example? Would there be something following up on the Trump Tsai phone call in 2016, a Biden Tsai phone call? And that hasn't happened. One has instead had meetings between, uh, for instance, Xi Kim in the US and uh, members of the Biden administration, incoming Biden administration. But at the same time, Tsai would like to benefit from. For example, actions of the Trump administration as it's on its way out, if it is on its way out, uh, that would benefit Taiwan. And so then Tsai does not want to take any stance too strongly in support uh, to kind of signal ties with the Biden administration and also does want to maintain this kind of tie with the Trump administration, no matter what the results end up being, though obviously Biden won the popular vote, uh, and and then um, just in the hopes that Taiwan can benefit this way. And so it's also interesting, too, because uh, Keith Kwok previously visited Taiwan in September, but the, that was originally intended to announce this as being for this dialogue. But the purpose of the meeting of that visit was changed uh, at the last minute. It took media by surprise, actually. Eventually, it became to mourn Li Donghui and conduct meetings. And it was it's believed at that point in time that this was because Taiwan was perhaps advertising this too heavily, that there was perhaps going to be a bilateral trade deal between the U.S. and Taiwan, and there was backlash from the U.S. side on this. And so eventually, maybe that's part of the reason why the meetings are conducted in this way currently, through partially through online, partially through offline, but without a high-level visit such as Kroc coming to, the, to, coming to Taiwan again. And Bill, what do you think will come out of this meeting? Do you think anything concrete will come out? Of course, the government here has said it hopes to sign an agreement with the United States side to make these meetings regular, put a time frame on them. Right. I, I think the most most valuable kind of deliverable that would come out of out of this round of talks would be it would help to revitalize or jumpstart um, the TIFA talks process, the TIFA talks, and that's the that's the main channel of of, of negotiation. 
um, on trade issues and commerce and business issues between the U.S. and Taiwan. And that, um, that process has been stalled since 2016, um, largely over, over the very controversial pork and, and beef issues, but uh, th- those are getting resolved. So I think that would be the most, most meaningful, important development that came out of this if it put more new energy into this, this um, so-called TIFA talk po- process. And talking of business talks and trade talks and economic talks, the signing of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership in Hanoi last Sunday has led to a flurry of government voices playing down its possible negative impact on Taiwan. An economics minister, Wang Meihua, said that the difficulties for Taiwan to join international organisations because of political factors are great, but the government is still working on ways to improve Taiwan's global competitiveness as a way to counter the impact of the RCEP. Now, Taiwan's top trade negotiator, John Dung, said says 70% of Taiwan's exports to RCEP member states are information, communication and tech products, which he says are already tariff-free under the World Trade Organization's Information Technology Agreement. However, Deng is warning that the remaining 30% of products are from Taiwan's old economy industries, including the petrochemical and machinery sectors, and they're likely to be affected. So, Bill, of course, in a 70% won't be affected, 30% will be affected, but that's what they're saying that now, and of course that could change thanks to RCEP. And of course there's calls for Taiwan to join it, but not much chance of that because, of course, Beijing has a big say in this trade organisation. That's right. I, I know that. I know the the opposition Nationalist Party has been been, um, you know, complaining or, or or criticizing the government for not even trying to join. They they say, but that's that's a disingenuous uh, uh, comment uh, argument because unrealistically because China would never. Would never let let Taiwan in. Um, so what what is it what does it really mean though? What how how important is this uh, is this trade pact? I mean it's it's pretty significant in in that it it covers more of humanity than any other previous regional trade agreement. That's two point two billion people. Um, so it, it, in a way it's important and significant, but um, it, it it I don't think it'll be a game changer um, because. Um, you know, mostly because most of the most of the trade pack members already have FTAs. Not all of them, but but a, a lot of them do. So a great deal of trade liberalization has already happened among them. And another factor is there's still there'll be a lot of barriers and loopholes, um, and you and you really can't do much between countries with with economies that are so different, uh, such as Japan and, and Laos. Uh, they're, they're just completely different uh, different stages of of economic development. And um, I, just one other point I would I would point out is that that the the trade packet doesn't impor- doesn't really address new important challenges such as digital trade and e-commerce. It's mainly old trade, of course, because those U.S. talks going on in Washington mm-hmm. do actually talk about commerce, e-commerce, and trade and five G, etc., etc. And of course, Brian, the government has said we can't join the RCEP, but of course we're continuing to try to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which of course was signed in 2018 and is led by Japan. And that's right. Um, so then the claim is that we will actually seek pursuing other agreements. Uh, I think part of the way the Pan-Green Camp has framed this is that, uh, for example, joining RCEP, it is perceived often in Taiwan, particularly among, again, just the Pan-Green Camp, as a China-led trade agreement. Uh, there's been a debate on the nature of the RCEP. Is it China-led? Is it Asian-led? Uh, between, you know, which who stands to benefit more? It is true, definitely, that China's largest economy in that. Um, but also, for example, one notes that Japan is also part of the RCEP. Japan and China obviously have geopolitical tensions, but they are in the same trade pact. 
Act. Um, but I think it's it's become an issue, a wedge issue, on which the KMT has sought to attack the DPP. And that does not surprise, and it's not surprising that the kind of same old framing regarding trade issues comes out. Uh, for example, Ma Ying-Zio is claiming that accepting the 1990 consensus would be a precondition to joining RCEP. And he's called for, actually, for example, joining both the CPTPP and RCEP as well, uh, but claiming that one is a precondition to another, almost kind of framing it as though to join the CPTPP, Taiwan needs to enter RCEP too, and to do that, it needs to, to accept the 1990 consensus. That's kind of an odd framing of it. I don't think that's true, but... The KMP is using a talking point to attack, attack uh, Tsai. And it's a question regarding, I think, the CPTPP as well, because of the uncertainties of the Biden administration. Uh, will a Biden administration seek to rejoin the TPP, for example? It uh, took this new form after America withdrew on Trump's first day in office. And then after that, from becoming a US-led trade, trade agreement, became more of a kind of Japan-led trade agreement. And so I think that that's also a question, I think, that uh, particularly Tsai is dealing with these uncertainties right now. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting point. You know, in the waning days of the Trump administration, there's been a lot of debate and discussion over whether Trump has been been good or bad for Taiwan overall. And in the bad column would would definitely be Trump's decision almost after he got into office of of withdrawing from the TPP. And that was that was a, tra- a tragic development for Taiwan because, of course, if the, if the United States were still a part of that, it could, you know, give other, it would be a main main advocate for Taiwan's admission and it would give other other countries the, the, the courage and the cover to join. Um, and I, I agree with Brian. Uh, so far, uh, President-elect Biden has not indicated whether he's going to, uh, you know, Join, make a, another bid to to get involved with the CPTP, CPTPP, <laughs> get involved with this again uh, once he enters office. And and um, a lot of an anal- analysts have said it, it's it's unlikely to be a high priority for now. Um, but it's it's really a shame in in, in that uh, you know the United States has given up its leadership in this this realm. And and uh, what we're learning from this the RCEP. Is that um, you know the rest of the world isn't waiting around for the U.S. The rest of the world is is moving on, and um, you know in many ways this this uh, this this agreement will 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 bolster China. I thought it was really interesting if you you watched uh, you know the, the the celebration of the signing of it was was done virtually of course because they couldn't couldn't meet and I thought it was really interesting to see countries like uh, Vietnam. And South Korea and the the, the representatives uh, being on camera with little little desk flags uh, little flags on their desk, um, little tiny desk desktop flags, um, where the Chinese ceremony China's ceremony was conducted in front of, of of a wall with very five very large bright red Chinese flags and and Premier Li Keqiang you know China's second highest official after Xi Jinping oversaw the Beijing event and everything so so Beijing. Is taking it very, very seriously. I mean, Bill, do you think, do you see if the government sort of said, hey, we've got to join these trade organisations, so yeah, we love the 1992 consensus. Do you even see Beijing saying, okay, join us now you've said that, or do you think Beijing's still poo-pooing Taiwan's entry? Right, right. It, 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 even if they embrace the 92 consensus, it, would, it, would get them, it wouldn't get them into this group. No way. I think so, absolutely. I think that just uh, this is not something China would allow. They would not want Taiwan to have a representation in an international trade pact uh, as something separate than China, uh, even as a separate economy. I mean, Taiwan is already part of the WTO, but I think particularly now in in 2020, China would not allow Taiwan to gain ground in this way. They would perceive it. They would just try to exclude Taiwan from any uh, trade agreement or, or trade uh, pact that they are part of. 
Do you think Bill, this is a way to marginalise Taiwan further? Or that's what the heads in Beijing are thinking, possibly? It, you know, it is. It is. It's 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 another alarm bell for Taiwan that that it, it's it's facing this this marginalization. But um, so it needs to get serious in, about other ways. Um, you know, the, the the thing the most important for thing for Taiwan to do is to really become the indispensable nation in the in the global economy to be, become tightly enmeshed with with the global economy. And it needs to find other other ways to do that now. Yeah, that's right. And I think particularly it's going to be a challenge with, uh, for example, all these different trade pacts in the area, CPTPP, RCEP, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which is seen as China's ploy for regional dominance, uh, more so than, for example, RCEP by many experts. Uh, also moves by uh, New- Australia, New Zealand, Japan, India, um, South Korea, I believe, to form a new supply chain pact to wean off of dependence from China. And I think this also could be key for Taiwan because of the fact that uh, one of the things Taiwan has going for it is the supply chain, particularly of semiconductors and, and other goods, which uh, can actually bolster ties with other regional powers. And so I think that's also an interesting development to watch. Um, I think particularly security developments also have drawn the so-called quad together. Um, and so I think I think a lot of it's going to really be a question just now. There are all these competing trade blocks, but they also kind of align. And so how will Taiwan ever navigate that? And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Wednesday announced some new coronavirus prevention measures, saying it will begin mandating the wearing of face masks at eight types of public venues from December the 1st. Now, people who fail to adhere to these regulations will face a fine of between 3,000 and 15,000 NT for non-compliance under Article 37 of the Communicable Disease Control Act. And Health Minister Chen Shih-jong says the new rules are aimed at minimising the chances of the transmission of the coronavirus or other breathing and lung illnesses during the winter months and also to prevent the overburdening of the island's healthcare system. The health minister on Thursday, meanwhile, dismissed calls for shorter quarantine periods for people who choose to return to Taiwan for February's Lunar New Year holiday, saying that would be impossible as the coronavirus would not be on holiday over the Lunar New Year period and business people or students looking to return to Taiwan for the holidays should simply come back earlier. And that statement came as Taiwanese business people have been expressing their hope that the mandatory full day quarantine period can be reduced over the holiday period and also say they plan to petition the government on the matter. So Brian, business people coming back from mainly China basically wanted to petition the government to say we should stay in quarantine for no more than three days. Yeah, that's been a debated, uh, particularly regarding shortening quarantine measures, uh, changing this thing pattern, uh, which has proven effective, and so forth. I mean, people don't want to stay locked up at home, particularly if you're coming back from the lunar year, because you have to stay home for 14 days. And well, if you come back for a short holiday, that already takes up a lot of the time. Um, and so there's that. Also, there's talk of creating travel bubbles. Uh, there's, I mean, uh, the COVID-19 cases continue to increase globally. Uh, but I think sometimes in Taiwan, there's the sense that, that this is over. And so I think particularly government strengthening measures, again, is trying to remind that it's still out there, uh, that there will be waves coming back. Uh, in the past, I mean, one year ago, there was fears that COVID would be more active during winter months and there would be a new kind of new wave of COVID one year from when it started just because of winter. Um, and I think also the government is is uh, looking at the fact there's been an uptick of, of cases 
cases within the past few months. Um, for example, we hit 400 cases in April. In September, it was around 500, and then it recently now we're at 600. So just there has been a clear acceleration in the number of cases. I think the government's also hoping to keep an eye on preserving Taiwan's record as not having cases of domestic transmission, trying to maintain this uh, international prestige Taiwan has gained from being seen as successfully having fought off COVID-19. And so that's another pressure, and I think that's... Uh, for example, a reason why now everyone, including Taiwanese citizens, will be required to test negative for COVID-19 within three days of their departure date to return to Taiwan. Um, and so previously, Taiwanese were excluded, Taiwanese citizens were excluded from that, which was criticized as a, a racist and exclusionary measure for foreign residents of Taiwan. But uh, I think the government is now just becoming much more wary of that. If you become too lax on this, you will have an explosion of cases. And Bill, do you think this, this, this call by Taiwanese business people to only spend three days in quarantine is going to win them any friends with the general public? No, I don't think it will. I, I think that two-week quarantine has become kind of a sacred thing. I think people view it as the curtain that is protecting this society from this, this dreadful, dreadful illness. I mean, I, I wake up every every morning and read the news and see how the rest of the world is, is melting down, especially, especially my my home country, the United States, were the equivalent of a few jumbo jet airliners crashing. You know, the numbers of deaths were equivalent to these several major plane accidents. It's 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 shocking and it's horrific. Um, so, and and Health Minister Chen Shijong and his team have displayed such a high level of competence and have won so much credibility. If he if they, you know, insisted that I'd have to stand on my head every day for an hour, um, I, I would. <laughs> I have so much faith in them, <laughs> and and I, I'm also so so grateful for for the, the the fantastic effort they've they've made in protecting protecting us from this this awful illness. And of course, yeah. Brian, they're going to make sure people are wearing face masks. I mean, most people still wear face masks. Mm, that's right. Make that clear. But of course. That has laxed off a bit, and you do see more people now not wearing face masks in certain places. Obviously, supermarkets and hypermarkets. But now the government says, basically from December the 1st, people will be fined between 3,000 and 15,000 NT for non-compliance for not wearing a face mask. But do you think this will actually be, obviously, certain supermarkets you walk into, like a famous French one, when you go in there, <laughs> there's a person at the door making sure you don't go any further without a face mask on. But, of course, my local supermarket... There's no one at the door. Mm, so right. how are they going to reinforce these fast face mask regulations? So that's one of those things, I think. Even just one year ago, it was actually not totally enforceable. There are just too many places to actually go around checking and so forth. And so not every place was actually falling through. I think a lot of it is actually security theater in that sense. And particularly in the subways, at this point, you rarely see people being stopped if uh, for their temperature. Um, but I think this, again, reminds, uh, so people maybe will start taking this a little more seriously. Um, this, these measures existed one year ago, and, and they were seen as an effective measure to stop the spread of COVID-19. And so I think people are used to it and they will kind of accept it. Um, I think that's something that might come back a bit more is, for example, taking down names and registrations. For example, if you visit a coffee shop or someplace you sit down for a while to ensure that if someone has COVID, you know who is there at what time. And that's kind of dropped off a bit more. And I think that, that will be reintroduced. But I think measures such as wearing masks and uh, using hand sanitizer and so forth, this has become very integrated into everyday life over the past year. So I don't think that it will go away. I think it just kind of it's a fresh reminder that this is still a threat, and these measures are still needed. It is. I, I think um, you know the, the general public at large is, has really done a great job in embracing this, and um, I, I think they'll continue to do it. 
And in this week's cross-strait news, the Mainland Affairs Council kicked off the week by slamming Beijing, following reports that people in power there are drafting a list of so-called stubborn Taiwan independence advocates. Now, news of the list was first reported by the Hong Kong-based Da Gong Bao, which said that China would seek to imprison the people whose names appear on the list in accordance with its laws. Now, the newspaper cited authoritative sources for the front-page story. So, Brian, considering your name might well be on this <laughs> list, how do you feel about it? Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, this has uh, been an idea floated by China various in, in past years, uh, supposedly first proposed two years ago within the Chinese government. But one has heard just kind of rum- uh, rumblings and rumors of, of creating a list to target Taiwanese independence advocates for quite a while. Uh, I don't know what this would take. I mean, it's obviously impossible to compile a list of everyone that supports Taiwanese independence. Um, it's too large, A, and unforceable, and B, just how do you know who supports something? Maybe they have not said it out loud in a public venue or whatever. Um, but then then I think the uh, uh, action that China would take is, for example, just trying to strike fear. Um, you know, people that are public advocates of Taiwanese independence, whether they are politicians, academics, uh, activists, or, or whoever, are already prevented from traveling to China or Hong Kong. They're blocked from even entering. Um, I think the real risk is particularly Taiwanese are in China, and maybe they have a past record of making political statements. Maybe they have a political, they have a history of involvement in, say, the DPP or Pan Green political parties, and they could be targeted because um, there have been Taiwanese that are arrested in China, such as Li Mingzhe or Morrison Lee, or even uh, some pro-unification advocates, such as Tsai Ting-shu, who is an academic. Um, promotes cross-strait exchanges, but that was still apparently viewed as, as threatening for China, and he was arrested on, on state security charges. And so I think that they might be the group that is targeted. Um, this also will be, I think, used to, to pressure Taiwanese companies. There have been also talk in oh, two years ago of creating a list of companies that support Taiwanese independence, which would probably be companies owned by prominent pan-green figures or have made public statements or perhaps who would list Taiwan as, as separate from China on their websites. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a real question for me about this list, but China's raised this before in the past. And of course, Bill Bryan mentioned self-censorship there among Taiwanese because obviously Beijing thinks, OK, we put them on a list, they'll shut up. Do you see them shutting up? No, I, I don't see them. I don't see them shutting up. And I, I think it's important to note that the you know the source of all this, the the newspaper uh, Da Gong Bao in, in in Hong Kong, is is a pro Beijing paper. It's it's a mouthpiece of of the Communist Party, uh, not widely read. Um, but um, yeah, I think um, I, the, the the interesting thing for me it is the um, you know the Chinese Communist Power, the the, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, the way they use power, they, they use power not often to act, but to haunt. They want to haunt you. They want to create this chilling effect. They want to create this environment where you you don't know exactly where the red lines are. You don't know who is on the list. You could be on the list, maybe not, but they'll make you worry about it. And um, so it does create this this chilling effect. Um, no doubt in my mind, they already have, a, have such a list like this. Um, Drawn up long ago, um, but don't. Yeah, it's it's um, it's just it just creates this this climate climate of fear and concern, um, and it can be it can be very effective sometimes. Well, um, climate of fear. Do you do you see it being effective, Brian? I mean, are you going to suddenly go home and just <laughs> rip up all your paper notes and just not do your same job anymore? Well, I think probably not for me. I think it's uh, way too late for one. But also, I think um, yeah, it does encourage self censorship. 
Uh, I think particularly what would happen more likely with this list is you would go after some high-profile figures and accuse them of being pro-Taiwanese independence and, for example, block them from getting work in China. Uh, maybe businessmen or companies or more likely, I think, entertainers. I mean, entertainers uh, are replaceable. They're not, they're not, for example, part of any supply chain or, or run vital businesses in China. And China wants to promote its own domestic entertainers, so you can target Taiwanese entertainers. And I think they will target people that are kind of maybe have some unclear views or have expressed something about Taiwan but not totally. And so I think that's it's good to keep it there as a, a blurry red line for them, and, and it keeps people afraid. And so I think it's probably going to use to be go after high-profile targets. And before we go this week, an electrician in Tainan is being lauded a hero for catching a three-year-old girl who fell from the third-floor window of an apartment in the city. Now, Lin Fang Tian, who works as an electronics store, which is on the ground floor of the building, says he saw the girl sitting on the windowsill, and when she fell, all he was thinking was, I must catch her! The child suffered no visible injuries and was taken to hospital for a checkup by the local fire brigade. But while a good story there, the story did get a bit sadder, as the city's social affairs bureau is now investigating the matter and says the father left the girl at home alone, which is a possible violation of Article 51 of the Protection of Children and Youth Welfare and Rights Act. And that article states that children under the age of six should not be left alone. And individuals found guilty of violating that law face a fine of up to 15,000 NT and are required to take parenting courses for four to 50 hours. So, Brian, starts off as a nice story, <laughs> ends up as a bit of a gritty story. Um, yeah, that's right. I guess that's how often these things work. Just, you know, something that seems on the funny on the surface then is part of something bigger and more complicated. And so I guess it's a question then, what was going on with this kid, that they were sitting in a window alone and, and so forth. Um, but also what is kind of odd to me is that this is not the first story in the past few months of a kid falling from a high place and being caught. There was a story in August of the child that got pulled up by a kite. And so I'm, I'm kind of surprised that this is the news again. In a different circumstance, and also just, uh, and it also raises questions. Because I remember with that story, people were like, well, how did this kid get caught up in a kite during this event, this public event? Like, are, is the government official of the running event responsible and so forth? And so I think uh, now's a call to accountability. Well, yeah, I, I love these stories of these everyday heroes uh, that do things like this, catching catching the little girl. But yeah, and, and the flip side, it is, it is a sad story. If, uh, the media reports I read said that the father's a single a single parent, right? Um, so I, I don't know I don't know what kind of pressures he was under, what he was where he was where he was when this this happened, and um, it also made me think, not necessarily in Taiwan at the moment, but outside with, with this pandemic going on, there are there are a lot of parents right now under a lot of pressure and stress trying to take care of their their kids and and um, also juggle all the other things going on in their lives. Yeah, that's right. And so I think um, it, it's it's one of those things, you know, perhaps there could be more resources. I mean, there are a lot of single parents in Taiwan, and sometimes they're still working to support their child. And so that's perhaps one of the challenges that maybe he was actually working, trying to struggle. And and I think that sometimes social uh, judgment will then turn against this person, be like, oh, a responsible parent, you know, he was doing all this and so forth. But I think that fails to address the broader structural issues, perhaps. Do you think it's a point, Bill, that maybe child services should be maybe being more active in finding sort of single parent families that maybe need a childminder if they're working? No, most most definitely. Um, you know, the, the the work in the prevention side of these cases is always so important. 
And Brian? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think just that, uh, particularly this has come up as an issue in, in elections, having better support for childcare. I mean, there are a lot of parents who are, both parents are working, uh, and so it's very difficult to find time. Sometimes they'll have a parent of, them, of their own their own parent to rely on, so the, the parent will take care of their, their grandchildren. Uh, that's not always the case, and I think that then that leads to a lot of difficulties. And particularly for people working in some careers in which you have to work long hours, or you're working just different odd jobs, it, it can be difficult. And for single parents, all the more so. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And William Foreman. Great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.